If you would, please take your Bibles and turn in them to Luke chapter 23, to Luke's Gospel chapter 23. I'd like us to read together this morning verses 32 through 43. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Please follow along as I read verses 32 through 43. We're breaking into... Uh, the Passion Week of Jesus, the event of His crucifixion. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him. And the criminals, one on His right and one on His left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide His garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, none of us here knows what the future holds. None of us knows what a day will bring. This church body, year by year, maybe especially this year, has been reminded of that forcibly. Father, we don't know that we have anything beyond this hour when your gospel is to be preached to us. Please come. Bring the good news home to every heart and save us all. Please come and minister to us at the deepest level of our soul's needs. Please come, remove our sins. Cover us in the blood of Christ and save us all. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. What hope do you have that you are right with God and that you will one day enter heaven? Uh, this morning, I've turned our attention to a very well-known episode in Luke's gospel, uh, the story of the infamous thief on the cross. Uh, this episode, perhaps more than any other in the Bible, forcefully and compellingly demonstrates that salvation is entirely by grace alone, through faith alone, 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why turn our attention to that theme this morning? Well, I'll give two reasons. First of all, uh, because we are coming this morning to the Lord's table together. We do this once a month, and I want to lead us in remembering the Lord's death together and what it is His death has accomplished for us for our salvation. So this sermon will serve as my communion meditation uh, this morning. A second reason I've turned our attention to this particular episode in Luke's gospel is because we have for the last several months been considering the Sermon on the Mount. I've been in a regular exposition of Matthew's Gospel. We're briefly breaking away from that series. We just concluded several months in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. That passage, those chapters, show us what following Jesus faithfully is meant to look like. The Sermon on the Mount is about how we ought to obey Jesus as His disciples and how we ought to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that he has given to us as citizens of his kingdom. And though I have labored to state many times that the Sermon on the Mount is not about how one becomes a Christian, but instead about how one ought to live as a Christian, I am nonetheless aware that for some it is all too easy to begin to think that our salvation depends ultimately on what we do. Uh, Legalism as it's been called, is a real thing. Legalism is an ever-present danger. What's legalism? Legalism is not having a conscience. It's not having scruples. It's not having standards. We ought to have those sorts of things. We ought to love God's law and care about His law and strive to keep God's law. But legalism is the idea that my standing with God and my position of favor with Him is established ultimately through my obedience, through my meticulous law-keeping. That is the decisive factor in whether or not I make it in. And I'm concerned this can be the case for some of us. Uh, For many of us, uh, the way the winds blow or the tide goes in our hearts, it tends toward legalism. Maybe not for everybody, but certainly for some of us. And so what I want to do this morning, if there's any sort of residual legalism pooling around your heart, I want to use this passage in Luke 23 kind of like a needle to sort of draw that fluid of legalism off your heart. This passage is the end of all legalism. I ask, what hope do you have that you are right with God and that you will indeed enter heaven one day? How would you answer that question? You die today. I don't think it'll go this way, but suppose you meet Peter at the gate. He says, why should you enter heaven? What right have you to be let in? What answer would you give to that question? My friend, any answer that starts in the first person, I, me, mine, is the wrong answer. The only proper answer to that question must come in the third person. He. Him. What another has done. This is a simple sermon designed to encourage you to look not at yourself and your sins or to your good works and your acts of righteousness, but to Christ alone for salvation. Five simple points this morning from this familiar narrative. I doubt we're going to get to all of them. 
we'll go until about 11.40, okay? And then we'll come to the table, however many we do in that time. Point number one, anyone can be saved. Point number one, anyone can be saved. Let's ask the question, who was this criminal? Who was this criminal? There's a a few things we can say about him. First of all, he must have been an exceedingly wicked man, an especially wicked man. I mean, we understand we're all sinners, right? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in some way evil, wicked. This man was an especially wicked man, egregiously wicked man. First of all, it was foretold in the prophet Isaiah 750 years before Jesus' crucifixion. It was foretold that this man would be there at the crucifixion. How did we know that? What does Isaiah say in Isaiah 53? They made his grave with the wicked. The wicked in his death. He was killed, rendered dead alongside wicked men. Uh, Later on in verse 12, Isaiah will tell us he was numbered among the transgressors. It was prophesied that Jesus, the suffering servant, was going to die between wicked men. And the fact that he died between wicked men, Isaiah tells us, is meant to compound the sense of shame and scandal of his death, that he would die with such men as this. Further, would understand this man's crimes were apparently so great that he was given the death sentence. He was not permitted uh, to be at large. He was given the death sentence, and not only any death sentence, the very worst possible kind of death sentence you could give anyone. This man had done such wicked things, he would suffer and he would die in the most egregious and ignoble way possible, the most shameful way possible, even death on a cross. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, the scriptures say. Okay, second thing we learn about the man, he was exceedingly sinful. Second, we know that this man would likely have observed everything that happened from the moment Jesus left Pilate to the actual crucifixion itself. We read in verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. That, that leading away to Golgotha, to the place of the skull, they were probably walking alongside Jesus or in front of Jesus or behind Jesus. This man would have seen Jesus carrying his cross. He would have seen him falter and stumble and need to invite the help of Simon to carry his cross with him. He would have seen the way Jesus was scourged and mocked and spat upon on his way to the place called the skull. He would have seen the nails driven into his feet and into his hands. He would have heard everything that Jesus said to those around him. He would have heard everything that Jesus said, at least audibly out loud, to God, his Father in heaven. More than that, I would speculate it is likely that this man had some prior knowledge of who Jesus was, even before he starts to ascend the hill with him on the way to Golgotha. If he had lived in Judea or Galilee, it is highly likely he knew about Jesus. And one of the reasons I think this is because in the following chapter in Luke 24, what do we have in Luke 24? Of course, we have the resurrection, but we also have the road to Emmaus where Jesus is walking alongside these uh, two companions who are talking about the things that have happened in recent days. And Jesus sort of saddles up alongside them and asks them what they're talking about. And they say, are you the only visitor in all of Jerusalem? You don't know what's happened here in recent days? You don't know about this man, Jesus, who who we had hoped would be the Christ and would be the Messiah and how uh, our our leaders put him to death? Where have you been, man? You must be the only person who hasn't seen the papers or read the news about this Jesus who doesn't know about who he said he was and who we thought he was going to be and what has now occurred. So I wonder, could it be that this criminal... Uh, that he was aware of some of the hearsay 
and the rumors surrounding this man Jesus, who now walked alongside him carrying his cross. I suppose it's speculation, but I think we can be pretty confident he probably knew about Jesus and the kinds of things that he had been saying and doing. Now, what we do know for certain is that this criminal would have known that Jesus professed to be the Christ, the King of the Jews. Uh, This man, hanging on a cross next to Jesus, he heard those men who shouted in verse 35, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Uh, He would have heard also the statement of verse 37, if you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. He'd probably at least put it together if he hadn't known yet that this man professed to be the Christ, the Son of God the Messiah, the King of the Jews. A third thing we can observe about this man, he was an exceedingly wicked man. He probably knew something about who Christ was. Third thing we learn about him is that it's likely that just hours or even minutes prior to his interaction with Jesus that we'll look at in a moment, uh, that the man himself was mocking and reviling Christ. It's likely that the man himself was mocking and reviling Christ, maybe even moments before the famous interaction he has with the Lord. We don't see this in Luke's account. If you're thinking, I didn't see that in what we read, uh, it's not there. But if we read carefully in the other gospel accounts uh, of the crucifixion in Matthew and Mark, we discover that not only one of the men crucified alongside Jesus, but the other, both of them, actually reviled the Lord. So Matthew says in Matthew 27, 44, and the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And Mark 15, 32 records the same thing, saying, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So I just draw the conclusion that this man, even though he would repent and would trust in Jesus, at one point he was reviling and mocking the Lord. So who is this man? We see he's an exceedingly wicked man. He is a man apparently so wicked, we don't know exactly what he did. I mean, thievery was part of it. He's a man so wicked that the only appropriate punishment for his crimes is a shameful death on the cross. By the way, a penalty that he himself will acknowledge is just and right. He is a man who, if he had any awareness of Jesus at an earlier point in his life, had rejected him. And he is a man who, even on his way to his bloody death, likely blasphemed and reviled the Lord. Well, what else is true of this man? It is to this man Jesus grants full and free forgiveness. It is to this man, Jesus gives the promise of paradise forever. Well, what's the obvious lesson? Anyone can be saved. Anyone can be saved. If this man can be saved, anyone can be saved. We can easily forget this, but Jesus' ministry was carried out among sinful people. The people who were in desperate need of grace and forgiveness and salvation, he gravitated to sinners and to those who needed grace most. Jesus came for wicked people, for sinful people, for lost people, for hopeless people. Luke chapter 5, verse 30, we read this, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. These same Pharisees and scribes, uh, they are the ones who give us that wonderful title, friend of sinners. They call Jesus the friend of sinners. They meant it as a pejorative. 
Can you believe this man befriends sinners? Jesus is pleased to wear it as an honor. He doesn't despise the title. In fact, this is the reason Jesus came into the world, to befriend and love sinners. We read 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Who did Jesus come to save? He came to save wicked people, sinful people, sexually immoral people, perverse people, blasphemous people, angry and bitter people, greedy people, worldly people, revilers, adulterers, murderers, addicts, drunkards. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to save child molesters. He came to save the playboys and the porn stars. He came to save people who misuse and abuse other people. He came to save mothers who have abandoned their children and fathers who have walked out on their families and made shipwreck of their lives. He came to save those who have embezzled money. He came to save those who have been strung out on heroin and cocaine. He came to save people who have destroyed their lives and the lives of others with alcohol. He came to save abortion doctors. He came to save women who get abortions and the cowardly men who pressure them to do so. He came to save man-stealers and slave owners. He came to save those like the members of Hamas who invaded Israel and did unspeakable things to women and children. He came to save murderers and people on death row. He came to save the worst kind of people you can imagine. And even as I read that list, I'm aware there might be some here thinking, no, 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 no. I, I get that Jesus, his love embraces a lot of people, but surely not them. Surely they can't be saved after doing that. My friend, how great is your gospel? How large your view and your sense of the grace of God. Can your gospel save a terrorist? People who have done perverse and wicked things. People whose lives have been marked from beginning to end by terrible sins. Friends, the Bible teaches that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And we should remember that His grace is exalted the lower it reaches. He is able to reach the lowest depths of sin and depravity and raise such sinners to eternal life. And do you know what that means? That means He can save you. He can save you. Your sins, however great, do not disqualify you from receiving the salvation offered in Jesus Christ. Among that litany of sinners that I read out as a bunch of us. Because this man can be saved. One as wicked and crooked as me can be saved. Point number one, anyone can be saved. We learn secondly, point number two, salvation is all of grace. Salvation is all of grace. Think of this man's situation. And he finally comes to Christ. He's hanging on a cross for his crimes. Like that's the situation. A few hours earlier, maybe even a few minutes earlier, he had mocked the Lord. In a few moments, he will be dead. This man had no works, no religious achievements, no righteousness to bring to Jesus. He had nothing at all to commend himself to Christ. All he had was a terrible record. All he had was a life full of wickedness and sin. He is covered in sin, covered in debts. 
covered in failure and covered in guilt. How can a man like that be saved? That's my question. And if you're visiting with us here, maybe this is the first time you've been in a Christian church, or maybe it's the first time you've been in a Christian church that preaches the biblical gospel, it's crucial that you understand the answer to this question. How can this man be saved? This is like fundamental, foundational to the Christian faith, to the biblical gospel. This man can be saved because we believe, based on the word of God, that salvation is all of grace. What does that mean, my my, my visiting friend? Uh, It means that salvation can't be earned. There's nothing I can do, you can do to merit God's favor. If I'm going to be saved, if you're going to be saved, if we're going to have our sins forgiven, it must be not on my ability to reform my life or to submit myself to a series of uh, religious forms and rituals or to follow the law perfectly. The only way I can be saved and you can be saved is if God is pleased to look on us in mercy and in compassion and in grace. Only His grace can establish the merits by which we can be saved and we can be redeemed. This is why I say if you start answering the question, what gives you hope that you're right with God by answering in the first person, you don't get it. You've not yet understood the good news. Romans 5, 8 says what? God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like I was in the act of sinning. I was a rebel to his will. It's not like I had enrolled myself in a, a reform program or some kind of rehab or something like that. No, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Ephesians 2.8 reminds us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Titus 3 verse 5, our Savior saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Friends, our deeds, our works, our merits are not allowed to enter the equation. And it's crucial that you understand this. If you don't get this, you cannot understand Christianity. None of these people here in this room Oh, you'll see many of them come down the center aisle in a minute claiming Christ's sacrifice in their place for themselves. None of these people in this room deserve to be here. None of these people, when they stand before the Lord, will plead their own merits as their ticket into heaven. I've heard this comment a few times lately, uh, recently from like, people in the new members class, previous new members classes, or in the membership interviews and things like that, where someone has said at some point something like, oh, I I don't know that I really deserve to be a member here in this church. My friend, you may not understand who we are. We are a collection of wicked sinners. We are a collection of those who have no merit to bring to God. We are a collection of people who can only plead His grace and His mercy. We are all in this sinful mess together. We are all a collection of wicked people like this man on the cross who can hope in nothing else 
than the blood of righteousness of Jesus in our place. Now, I don't mean to belabor the point. I just want you to see this because it's so beautiful. I want to make sure you get this point that salvation is all of grace. I want you to see it's established in the most emphatic way in the case of this thief on the cross because it's not just that he had no works to bring to Jesus before his conversion, but you see also he had no works to contribute after his conversion. This is a, a genuine what some would call like a deathbed conversion. This thief has no future. He will never develop a long record of righteous deeds that can be read out Hebrews 11 style at his funeral or something like that. He will not be able to live a long life of faith-filled obedience to the Lord, which he would have, by the way, if he lived. No, he's got nothing in the past or in his future, which means, you see, the Lord didn't save him on the basis of some potential he saw in him. You see that? It's not just he had nothing in his past to commend him. He had no potential for a future of Christian fruitfulness. Uh, the Lord did not save this man because he thought he was making a good investment. That over time, uh, this man would maybe pay him back and contribute dividends. Uh, no, this man is a bad investment. Uh, this man is not going to yield dividends for the Lord. You know, some people... They walk around, Christian people, they'll walk around with this sort of debtor's ethic, and they'll say things like, well, Jesus has done so much for me, I only hope I can pay him back with how I'm living now. Pay him back? God gave his only begotten son. Do you think that by volunteering in the nursery or, you know, going to the soup kitchen or, you know, getting better at not coveting, you're going to pay God back? You can't pay him back. Friends, God is not like some divine entrepreneur who's buying up businesses and saying, you know, okay, here's a sinner, I'm going to infuse him with grace, and, and I'm trusting that if I, you know, infuse him with a grace infusion up front, well, over time, my investment is going to have a great return, and uh, there's going to be dividends for me, and it's all going to shake out in the end. If I will just infuse this sinner with grace right now, it'll all pan out for me. Friends, we're all a bunch of lousy stocks, all a bunch of junk bonds. I know Jesus doesn't invest in us in that way. He doesn't invest in us because we have so much potential and someday this will be worth it. I know we see compellingly in the case of the thief on the cross, no past works to bring, no hope for a bright future. If this man's going to be saved, it will be purely and totally and entirely all of the grace of God. This is the only way he saves all of us, if we will be saved, will be saved purely and totally on the basis of grace. That's point number two, salvation is all of grace. Point number three, we are saved by simple faith that looks to Jesus. We are saved by simple faith that looks to Jesus. Uh, children here, I think it was the last time I preached to you, we talked about coming to Christ. If you've not been listening to me up to this point, this would be a really good time to pay attention for the next like five or ten minutes, Okay. We are saved by simple faith that looks to Jesus. Look, if you would, at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? 
And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So clearly, I'll just stop there. At some point, this man began to appreciate that he was a sinner and that he deserved his death. He deserved condemnation. He deserved this severe form of punishment. And what does he say to his friend? We deserve this. We deserve to die for the sins that we have committed. And what he says, verse 42, and he said, Jesus, oh, excuse me, verse uh, 41, we indeed justly, we're receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. In other words, this man is blameless. This man is perfect. We are sinners. Verse 42, he then turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He looks to Jesus and he makes a simple request. Remember me. Remember me. That's the simple cry of faith. Faith is a humble looking to Jesus, asking him to do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. And faith never gets beyond this. Jesus, would you remember me? Look favorably on me. Would you bring me into your kingdom? Deliver my soul. Help me. Heal me. Save me. This cry from a dying man represents the very essence of faith itself. Faith is a humble looking up to Jesus, asking him, to save your soul. You don't need to know much to look to Jesus. You don't need a college degree. You don't need professional distinctions. You don't need any amount of money in your checking account or your 401k. You don't need anything except simply to know that you're lost and that you're a vile sinner and that He can save you. My friend, you don't need anything more than that. Think of this guy. He's never been to a Bible study. He, he, he never took the Exploring Emmanuel class. Never sat for a membership interview. Doesn't know the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Couldn't tell you what the chief end of man is. Couldn't define for you the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. He's never heard of it in his life. No, he's not going to get baptized. He's not going to start the membership process. This man has nothing. He's never tithed. He's never done the first good work. He's never volunteered to serve in the sound booth. Couldn't tell you the first thing about his church's confession of faith or about the doctrine of the Trinity and what have you. And he's never going to learn about that stuff. This man will be dead in the next few minutes. But what does he know? He knows that the man on the cross beside me is blameless, and he is perfect, and he can indeed save my soul. He knows this Jesus is able to save me from all my sins. It's all he needed to know. Surely the thief on the cross didn't comprehend it perfectly, but perhaps he had begun to appreciate that the man beside him was indeed the king of the Jews. He was indeed the Christ, the Son of God, and that that man drenched in blood was in the very act of accomplishing his redemption, that he was in the very act of saving his soul by absorbing the wrath of God in his place so that a crooked man like him could be saved from a life of sin. And he had hope that if he simply looked at him in faith, he could be saved. And that's it.
Friend, you're not saved by anything else. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the ground of our salvation. That's the only hope we have, that we're right with God and that we could enter heaven with him forever. If you come to Jesus, he will not subject you to a rigorous interview process. You will not have to agree to a 12-step program. There's no examination that he's going to submit to you. It's not like Jesus says, you know, I'm willing to receive your application. I'm going to put it in the pile with the others. We're going to consider it, and if we like your profile, we'll get back to you. No, you need only to know that you are a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior, and you must cast yourself on Him in faith that He will save you. And I will say, woe to the man or woman who makes the gospel more complicated than this. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You're wondering, can I be saved? Am I saved? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus says, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. I will never cast out. The Greek is ouch me ekbalo echo. Ouch me ekbalo echo. It's very popular today to get tattoos, right? And a lot of people like to get Greek tattoos. If you're going to get a Greek tattoo, this is a really good one. Ouch me ekbalo echo. Ouch means no. Me means no. Ekbalo echo means cast out. Use the word no twice, right? It's a double negative. Well, in English, a double negative contradicts they negate each other. A kids in grammar class, English class, you're not supposed to use double negatives. It works in Greek, though. When you have ume together, it means like, no, never. It's emphatic. This cannot happen. It will never happen. Ume, ekbalo, echo. Never will he cast anyone out. Whoever, whoever, whoever would come to him, he will save, he will receive, he will not reject them. I appreciate what John Brown says in commentary on this passage. No degree of previous guilt, no former habits of sin, no secret decree of God, no involuntary mistake, no feebleness in attempting to come to Him will induce Him to reject a single individual who, in the faith of the truth, comes to Him for salvation. You you see that? No degree of previous guilt. Pastor, you don't know what I've done. Someone like me can't be saved. No, 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 no. No degree of previous guilt. No former habits of sin. Oh, if you knew the addictions and the habits and the patterns that have marked my life. No, no habits. Former habits of sin. No secret decree of God. Have you ever thought that maybe God, you you read the gospel, you read the word of God, but you wonder, does God have his fingers behind his back, you know, like this? Is there some secret decree I missed? Could it really be this good, this free, this wonderful? No secret decree of God, John Brown says. No involuntary mistake. I just didn't understand everything. 
no feebleness in attempting to come to him. My friend, you can come anxious, halting, feeble, frail, stammering, stuttering. You can still come to him, and he'll receive you. Jesus wants you to come weary and heavy laden. He wants you to come hungry and thirsty. He wants you to come broken. He wants you to come lost, without a home, with nowhere to go. He wants you to come to him with nothing, that in him you might gain everything. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. One more quote on this point from Charles Spurgeon, preaching on this text talking about the thief on the cross. He says, he did not offer a single plate fetched from his doings, his present feelings, or his sufferings, but he cast himself upon the generous heart of Christ. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That was all. I wish that some who have been professors for years had as clear a faith. This poor fellow entrusted in nothing but the Savior and his mercy. Amen. Point number one. Anyone can be saved. Point number two, salvation is all grace. Point number three, we are saved by simple faith that looks to Jesus. Point number four, salvation is granted freely and in a moment. I'll be very brief on this point. Salvation is granted freely and in a moment. Look at this. And he said, just, just, just think of the man's life. Maybe he's in middle age. I just think of all the wicked things that mark this man's life. Moments before, mocking the Lord, reviling him. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That can't be it. Can that really be it? He recognizes he's a sinner worthy of this punishment. He recognizes the man on the cross next to him maybe is the Christ, the Son of God, that he can save me. He looks to him in faith and says, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, yes. Today, you will be with me in paradise. My friend, if that seems off to you, We've got to drain that legalism off your heart. The gospel teaches us it's only by grace that we're saved. Through what Jesus has done, in a moment, sinners can be saved. What's that song? Um, God be the glory, great things he hath done. There's the line. That moment from Jesus, fresh pardon receives. Again, a moment. Jesus will grant us salvation. It's, it's not like there's a, an entry exam. It's not like there's, you know, an application process. No, Jesus is willing in a moment when a sinner comes to him in the knowledge of the truth to forgive them instantaneously, to forgive them freely, to forgive them totally, holding nothing back. My friend, how wonderful would it be 
If someone who's here this morning, maybe you walked into this building lost in your sins. You came in with the sentence of judgment and hell hanging over your head. Do you know what this text teaches us? You can walk out of here destined for heaven. In a moment, you can be saved. In an instant, Jesus would be willing to say these words to you. If you were to die even this day, you will be with me in paradise. I have covered what's gone behind. I've compensated for what lacks in your future. You will be saved this day. You could have the confidence as you walk out of this building that you can be safe with Jesus Christ, forgiven of all your sins. All right, point number five as we move toward a close. Anyone can be saved. Salvation is all of grace. We are saved by simple faith that looks to Jesus. Number four, salvation is granted freely in a moment. And number five, heaven is paradise with Christ forever. Heaven is paradise with Christ forever. I toggle all the time between different verses that I think of as like my favorite verse. Right now, this is my favorite verse. I'm so thankful this verse is in the Bible. Today, how does he describe it? He's about to die. He's about to pass through the curtain. Where is he going? Today you will be with me in paradise. I don't have the uh, Greek there memorized. Maybe that would be a good tattoo to get. With me in paradise. With me in paradise. What is heaven? What is the hope ultimately for sinners? That one day we will always be with the Lord in paradise. What a precious description. Is there anything better than thinking of being with Jesus in a place called paradise? That's the hope for every sinner who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is the hope of heaven. It is the hope of the kingdom. It is the hope of paradise forever with Jesus. Uh, Friends, if you are in a position to encourage a Christian who is facing death, encourage them with this passage. There's not a better bedside passage than this. Where are you going? What awaits you after this cancer, after this surgery? It's paradise with Jesus. And friends, if you, like this man, know that you're a sinner, if you turn from your sin, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, humbly, simply looking to Him for what He's done in your place, like this man, you can be saved and you can know I'm headed for paradise with Jesus. I'm headed to be with Him forever. You can be saved and you can have this hope in precisely the same way this thief on the cross did. We'll sing in a moment, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, and we are as vile. I hope there's been no sense of self-righteousness in looking on this man. That's us. There may I, the vilest he, wash all my sins away. It's such a poignant thought. William Cooper writes in those lines. The man is hanging on the cross next to Jesus, and he can see the flow of blood. 
coming down from his head, his hands, his feet, the blood flowing. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And was this man, could he have been cognizant by this blood? God will be pleased to save my soul. Well, friends, that blood that he saw with literal physical eyes, that we have pictured here before us, through a symbol the Lord himself gave us. We have pictured in the bread and the cup that very same sacrifice. And though we don't see it literally, physically in the same way, our hope is the same as his. There is no hope except the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from every stain of sin. May this man's hope be ours this morning as we come to the table. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we would know no hope but the blood. We have no other argument. We know no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But all of our hope, all of our confidence, all of our assurance for the forgiveness of sins, and for the hope of one day being in paradise with Jesus is based not on anything we've done. It is based on what Jesus has done in our place. Father, would you please, by your Spirit, humble us. Do not allow us to look to anything else. We pray that we would only look to what Jesus has done in our place that we would not look to our works, to our righteousness, to our religious achievements, to our purported maturity in the faith, through our knowledge of divinity, to anything other than the blood of our Savior. We look to Him. We ask that You would help us to have such humble confidence, such humble faith in these things. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.